how's everyone doing? Welcome to Friday Night with Friends. So How are you doing, buddy? Join us tonight. I want to introduce my next guest, um, Nathan Miller. Um, we go way back. Uh, in, in my UGST days, I, I, I got to work with his mother. Actually, his, his mom just taught me. Um, but Nathan Miller uh, has earned his Bachelor's of Science in Psychology from Rutgers University. In 2018, he completed his Master's in Christian Ministry with an emphasis in pastoral care and counseling from Urshan Graduate School of Theology. Nathan is an associate pastor at Calvary Tabernacle, and he's the youth president of the Delaware, North New Jersey district. And he sits on the board for the United Pentecostal Church International Pentecostal Heritage Society. And that is a mouthful. So the man wears a lot of hats. And we wanted to come on and, and talk about that Pentecostal heritage uh, as we are a countdown to Pentecost Sunday. Yeah. Um, so, Nathan, take it away. Go ahead and. Um, uh, do your speech. Well, man, it's it's great to be with you guys. I, I have to say one of the things that I was really worried about, you know, I had I had gotten in really good where before COVID, I had gotten invited to preach at Newark back to back years. So I, I was I was really excited. I thought, okay, I'm in the in crowd. Then COVID hits, and then I'm thinking, oh, oh, that may, you know, I may be done for, but here we are. I'm I'm back with Newark, one of my favorite places to be. So thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate being with you, and uh, I appreciate the topic that we're going to be covering today, which is uh, Pentecostal heritage. It's one of my uh, one of my favorites. So if you want, I can. I understand this is a casual conversation, but you want me just to go ahead and and take it away and go for it. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, go go right ahead. It's a it's a casual conversation right. where. We're sitting around at a table right now drinking coffee, and the audience is sitting down. And so, yeah, there, there you go. go. <laughs> there you go. I'm, listen, I'm ready to go. That's what she said. So, I'm ready to go. Well, <laughs> you know, I'll tell you one of the things that I was thinking about when when you're discussing discussing Pentecostal heritage, you can really get bogged down in the uh, you know the dates and the names and and everything else like that. And and you know this because you took this class at UGST. It is. It, it, you can fill a semester's worth uh, of information, and certainly we don't have the time to do that today. So I am, if you'll let me, if you'll permit me, I will cover just a little bit um, of that because the story, the bigger story, should inform the story that you and I are living. One of the things mm -hmm. that I would love to focus on is your story, is your audience's story, and how that impacts not only them, but their family, the church that they're in, uh, history is so much more than just names and dates. It's about application in everyday life. And so if uh, you'll grant me the time, I'll, I'll share a little bit of the story of our Pentecostal heritage and then how your story relates to that and how it makes an impact on the world in which you live, how this story makes that impact. So the United Pentecostal Church, um, it started from the Pentecostal movement it traces back to the teachings of two individuals. If you go back in history, uh, you will find that there are two major players uh, involved. You've got Charles Parham, and you can find him in Topeka, Kansas, and then you've got William J. Seymour. Many people are familiar with William J. Seymour because he's attached to the Azusa Street Revival, and that's the event that really historians uh, will tell you is the event that set off Pentecostalism in the 20th century. Um, so Charles Parham, 
uh, was a teacher at the turn of the 20th century. He had a Bible school, and William J. Seymour was invited to come and participate in, in that school. Uh, they prayed, they sought the face of God, uh, wanted an experience uh, that they found in Acts chapter 2, uh, referencing the Holy Ghost. They believed that it was for everyone there, and God poured out his spirit there in Topeka, Kansas. Interesting fact about William J. Seymour, he heard the experience, he saw the experience, he himself did not receive the experience, the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so here he is preaching by faith an experience that he himself had not yet received. Mm-hmm. So I think that's pretty interesting. You know, he sees it in other people. He knows that it's true based upon the word of God. But what faith, what faith that took uh, to continue to preach this? Anyway, long story short, uh, he's invited to come out to California. There is a mission out there that he's invited to preach at and be a part of. And uh, he gets to preaching out there, maybe one or two. He gets locked out of his own building because he's preaching this new thing called the Holy Ghost, and they're not having any part of that. No, they're not. They don't want any part of that. And so uh, William J. Seymour does find about five or six other individuals who are willing to uh, hear more about the Holy Ghost. And so uh, they find a little space on Bonnie Bray Street. I always laugh and say it's not actually Azusa Street. It's Bonnie Bray, the Bonnie Bray Revival. Uh, but Azusa Street sounds so much better, so we always typically go with that. But at ni- in 1906 is when this is happening. So 1901 is really where Charles Parham and that Bible school come together. 1906 is when Azusa Street starts. And what happens is really, really incredible. They're praying. Yep. They're in the Word of God, and they're praying. We think these things just take years of planning and take so much involvement. (laughs) No, not at all. All they're doing is they're praying and they're seeking the face of God together in unity, much like many of us are going to be doing tomorrow. They're seeking the face of God. They believe that God has something more for them. And so those six, seven individuals with William J. Seymour uh, have an experience. If you read his journal, uh, he says uh, that he feels like it was like a bolt of lightning that just came into that prayer meeting and people started receiving the gift of the Holy ghost. And they made, must've made quite a noise because it attracted the attention of other people that were there. Sound familiar. Maybe that sounds a lot like acts chapter two, when the power of God fell for the first time on the church on the day of Pentecost, same thing. They're making quite a noise. And uh, anyway, that draws attention, draws the attention of the paper. The local paper draws the attention of other people that are there. And you have to remember, there's no there's no Internet. Obviously, oh. back then, there's no Internet. There's no uh, email, cell phones. But people that are bored, uh, people that are interested in the community, they read this event occurring in the newspaper Uh, a lot of them would go to mock what was happening or they would just go to see these crazies that were there. And uh, what was really interesting is they would come and the power of the Holy Ghost, they would feel the power of the Holy Ghost at work and they themselves would be brought into the Azusa Street uh, revival. It's really quite incredible. So people that had no intention of going to church that day but to laugh and mock at those that were there ended up being drawn, many of them being drawn by God's spirit themselves. Nathan, can you, can you expound on the, the diversity that was there, the eclectic group of people? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of people. Uh, and I think this is funny. A lot of people from the high church that would come and, uh, 
they would come down to mock what was going on, not just because they thought it was theologically incorrect, but because they were so blown away that people from every class, from every tongue, uh, from every corner of the world could worship together. And that's exactly what was happening. You had people that were filthy rich uh, right in there with people that in other areas would have been homeless. You had people that uh, spoke perfect English. You had people that didn't speak English at all. Uh worshiping together. You talk about a power that draws people together and binds them together. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. And that's exactly what happens here at Azusa Street. They come together, they worship, most of them uh, speaking a different language, a different class. uh, That's all thrown away. There is a, a beautiful line. I believe it's actually from Frank Bartleman. Uh, and he writes that the uh, the racial line was blurred mm. or was taken away at Azusa Street. The racial wow. line was taken away at Azusa Street because how can you how can you focus on race? How can you focus on economic status? How can you focus on all of that when the power of God is at work to the degree that it was at Azusa Street? And so from 1906 to 1915. Uh, they have this revival in which people from all over the world show up. Keep in mind that in 1905, there is a thing called the Welsh Revival occurring in Europe. So God is just pouring out his spirit all over the face of the earth. It seems like at different places. But for the sake of argument, we say that, you know, if it didn't happen in the United States, it's, you know, it doesn't happen. If it wasn't for the United States, we would not have a Zoom. <laughs> that's it. That's kind of our so, uh, you know, for the, for the sake of the United Pentecostal Church, we look to that as the event that helped to trigger that. Well, from 1906 to 1915, this is occurring. They do move to 312 Azusa Street. Um, you talk about a building upgrade. Not really. It was a livery stable. Uh, they still had hay and all sorts of stuff nearby. So uh, they didn't upgrade to some fancy building and have wonderful, you know, electronics and all that kind of stuff. But none of none of that. It was just crates that were turned over for seating, hay, uh, and they were still having church. Mm-hmm. They were still getting after it, still having church. And so what you will find is that as they went outside and as they began to expand, it didn't have it didn't matter how much they moved. Word got out what God was doing, and people were being healed in the streets. People were receiving the Holy Ghost in the streets. Um, So there were people outside of 312 Azusa Street. They couldn't even get in, but they heard the message of faith from the street. You know, Seymour saying, if you want to be healed, there's a God that will heal you. And in the street, they were receiving their healing. Wow. Powerful. So it's still alive and well. It's still alive and well all these years later. And so um, we we see at Azusa Street, the color lines are removed. People from every nation and every tongue are coming together. They're worshiping. They're experiencing this great revival. Most importantly, they're coming. Many are coming from around the nation. They're receiving this, and then they're going home, and they're sharing it with their congregation with their friends and their family. So you talk about a powerful story. Azusa Street, this one event impacts so many people's stories where they are locally. So it's, it's really an incredible thing. Now, how does the United Pentecostal Church International fit 
into all of this. Well, Azusa Street is not the only amazing event in the United Pentecostal Church. In 1916, all good things must come to an end as far as that goes. The revival uh, from 1906 to 1915, it kind of changes gears, right? We can't have heaven on earth. You can't just continue to have this revival stretch on forever. In 1916, humanity decides they need to get involved and help out. And so, in 19, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's what we do. That's true. In 1916, uh, we begin to become organized. And there's a place for that. I'm not speaking against that, but I'm saying, uh, you know, God, obviously, with the help of man, they wanted to shift some gears. And so, in 1916, um, a large group of Pentecostal ministers get together with the assembly and they become the assemblies of God. And that teaching, the premise of this group, their teaching is oneness. Mm. So they're teaching about uh, oneness of God in baptism, in Jesus' name, and saying that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are in fact all embodied in Jesus Christ. That ruffles some feathers. Because here you've just come from Azusa Street, they weren't preaching oneness. That didn't that didn't happen. And so now all of a sudden in 1916, you have this new thing, this new revelation. Well, uh, if you're studying our history as it pertains to United Pentecostal Church, you'll hear of a place called Eureka Springs. I always like to laugh and say, if you ever forget, just remember Eureka, you know, the, the exclamation that you make. And that's how you can remember the oneness, uh, the oneness. But Eureka, I got it. There it is. Well, it's exactly what happens. There's ministers that are there, several oneness ministers at Eureka Springs that get the revelation of Jesus' name, baptism. Uh, and in January 2nd, 1917, they form a oneness Pentecostal organization called the General Assembly of the Apostolic Assemblies. I didn't say that wrong. They had some juicy names back then. I mean, they just <laughs> carried on forever and a day. Right. And uh, so long story short, I don't, I don't want to harbor on dates and organizations and names. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll condense it and let you do that reading on your own. But basically from 1925 to 1945, you have organizations coming together, trying to merge. And whether it's politics or whether it's something else, they find that they are unable to always come to terms. Meanwhile, organizations are popping up left and right, left and right. I could go on and on about the different names. Some of them were juicier than what I just gave you. Uh, but for the United Pentecostal Church, there are two entities that come together. In 1931, uh, there is uh, a group uh, that comes to the surface called the Pentecostal Ministerial Alliance. And then there is another one called the Pentecostals Assemblies of Jesus Christ. From 1931 to 1945, they'll kind of go back and forth on merging together. But finally, in 1945, they come together. And in that moment, they become the United Pentecostal Church International. Mm -hmm. And with it, they bring together 521 churches. And so from that, we become organized as the United Pentecostal Church. Howard Goss becomes the first superintendent. And from there, our first mission, and I know this, you'll appreciate this, your church, very missions-minded. They do a lot of this is done so that they can send people out into the mission field. They can become organized to send people out 
and preach the gospel into other countries and other nations. So the heart of the United Pentecostal Church, one of the foundational bricks, if you will, has always been missions organized to send. Now, I that is a very short and grossly underwhelming coverage. <laughs> Um, for that, we would need a full semester, but that is more or less the gist of the United Pentecostal Church. So if you're ever interested and you want more detail, I'm your guy. We can we can get coffee and we can sit down and discuss it together. But that is the gist of it. I hope that covers the beginning portion of it. That's wonderful. And Nathan, are you going to bring the uh, the story of your great-grandmother? I am. Oh, good. good. So, it's, so I'm glad that you bring it up. <laughs> So here's the foundation. I, I get it. I get it. Yeah. See, we're on the same wavelength. You and I, 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 I got you. you I got got you. You're good, brother. So one of the things that I think is amazing, a lot of people, I'll, I'll, I've, I've worked with a lot of um, students. One of them at Urshan College. It was really hilarious. I was taking them through uh, the museum, and I was letting them kind of handle different things. And one of them kind of piped up and said, "Well, that's great, but how does this impact me?" Great question. History should be applicable to our current day life. This story is not just about people, not just about dates. Yeah. This story impacts my story. Mm. In my story, I come from a family that was Trinitarian based. Uh, ministers loved the gospel, but a lot of them during this time period, uh, are going to churches that are preaching this oneness Pentecostal message. And I've got different grandmothers here. Now, this one, I've got pictures here. I've got a box that I keep all, it's called a, a, a memory box. Uh, Brother Arash, you have a memory box as well, somewhere in there. You would have had to do this for UGST. You've got a box in there. But I've got grandmothers, and I have got grandfathers. I've got notes all up and down here. And letters that were written that talk about their conversion, number one, and talk about the impact that they had on people. So I'll, I'll give a couple of instances of how this directly impacted me. So uh, my grandfather down here was at the merger. He was, he was one of 25% of those that were there that got the revelation of Jesus' name, baptism, three being one, and made that decision to go with this new United Pentecostal Church group. Well, that directly impacts my family line because he was directly uh, linked to the Neelands, which were my other side of the family. They also decide to go at that merger event. And so they come to the revelation of Jesus' name, baptism, and they go uh, the United Pentecostal route. I could tell you this letter here is, is uh, written years down the road. My grandmother uh, will come to the revelation of Jesus' name, baptism. She is a Cherokee. I have two grandmothers that are full-blooded Cherokee. Wow. Great, I would say they're great-great-grandmothers, rather. And uh, so the story the story that I read here and was, was passed down to me was um, she, all of this is going on, and she, before, this is before 1945, so that 1920s era, uh, she had heard about Jesus' name, baptism, and she said, Lord, I don't see it. 
I've, I've been searching scripture. I don't see it. God, if you're real like that, if you're one, you've got to reveal it to me in a way that I can understand because I don't get this. Have you ever felt that way before? Like, Lord, if this is for me, I don't see yes. it. You've got to reveal it to me. Well, she was, a full, like I say, she was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian uh, woman, had beautiful, long black hair, and she began to do her hair, weaving three beads into one. And the Lord spoke to her in that moment and said, just as you are putting these three into one, so am I. Mm. Well, when she got the revelation, it, Eureka, there you go. It, I mean, it hit and she was, she was, she got it. She went back and started reading scripture through that new lens, that new revelation, and just completely changed her life. Well, long story short, she goes and starts to, starts to testify in her local church. God bless her. Starts to testify in her local church because back then they had testimony service. Oh. And it's a Trinitarian church. Oh. She would go and testify about the oneness of the Lord and how God revealed to her the oneness of the Lord. Well, uh, Brother Rosh, you are on the pastoral team. Uh, how would you feel about that? Probably, I mean, you would agree with her now, obviously, but you, you would probably say, <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy. You know, this trouble, this trouble saint again. Well, they kicked her out of the church. <laughs> <laughs> they, they kicked her out of the church. Her five, <laughs> yeah, they said you're just you're too much. You got to go, and they booted her out of the church. Well, there were about fifteen, I believe it was fifteen between fifteen and twenty, that said uh, we want to know more about this wow. oneness message. And so, long story short, she uh, took those fifteen twenty, did Bible study, started a church in Waco, Texas. <laughs> started a church in Waco, Texas. So there is a church in Waco, Texas started by my great-grandmother because this oneness message wow. found its way to her, found mm. its way to her bedroom and changed her life. And as a result of that, changed the lives of 15 to 20 other families. And God knows how many since then. Individual stories make up the greater story. Yeah. So when you see that story, and I, again, I will tell you, I grossly had to go over very quickly, so I didn't get to go in the details, but understand that this Pentecostal heritage that you read about is not just dates. It's not just names. It's for you. Yep. It's your heritage. That's right. It's your story. And it impacts your life and the lives of others. The decisions that you make today impact you, impact your family, impact generations to come. Had somebody not gotten the revelation of Jesus' name baptism at Eureka Springs, my great-great-grandmother would have never heard that message, that I know of at least, would have never heard that message, would have never done that Bible study, would have never started that church. Would we be here today having this conversation? I don't know. I doubt it. Stories matter. Decisions matter. And so I tell people when they say, oh, this history, you know, I'm not a history person. I'm not a, you should be. God is, a, God is a historian. God is a historian at heart. Look at the Old Testament. They put up, uh, they put all sorts of memorials together. Why? To testify about the goodness of the Lord and what he did. I've got that memorial box 
I plan to hand it down to my daughter. Why? Not because of amazing things that I've done or that my grandparents have done, but to show the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Yes. Saved me. He saved my grandma. He kept us. Not only did he save us, but he kept us. He directed our path. And with every year that goes by, I add a little bit more to the box to tell the story of how good and how faithful he is. This is your heritage. Those people, those events, they do belong to you because they impact you. They impact your church family. They impact your community and they impact eternity. And we should tie into that and how important it is that we know it, to share it. We're overcomers by the blood and by the word of our testimony. Can I translate that? We're overcomers by the blood and by the words of our stories of what God has done for us. So the Pentecostal heritage is not just a good history book. It's your story. Yes, it is. It's your heritage. And it has immeasurable value. This is what I also tell people. I've, I, I've gotten people that came and they said, well, I'm first generation Pentecost. I don't have a grandmother. I don't have an uncle that knew about this. And I tell them excited. You know, one person I, I got, I got a hold of their shoulders. You know, I probably freaked them out a little bit. And uh, I told him, I said, that's awesome. I said, but this is your heritage. This is your story. Yes, it I said, is. It just took another branch. The, the main story is like a tree trunk. Mm-hmm. And it just grew another branch. Oh, and you're wow. that branch attached to the story. And it's like you could see it light up for them. They understood. Hey, yeah. You know, my family is forever changed because of this story. And because I'm passing it down. To the next generation. God forbid that our kids, Arash, God forbid that our kids not remember what God has done and what God has brought not only us through, but our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, and beyond. Yes. Amen. 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 What so a that, great story. Where where, um, where is your grandmother buried? Buried? Still buried in Texas. Wow. Still buried in Texas. So I've got family from Tennessee, uh, Texas area, Pennsylvania area. Yeah. Amazing. They're spread all over. But she's still there in Texas. Yeah. That's cool. You should you should you should do your, do your dissertation on her. You should. <laughs> I should. I should. Think about that for a moment. How crazy that we talk about you brought up the, the question, you know, what was kind of what was the, the integration of people during Azusa Street? Think of how crazy that is. Jim Crow laws in the 20s. Yep. Here you've got this Cherokee Indian woman starting a church in Waco, and it's a mixed interracial group. Interesting. The power of the Holy Ghost, the cross, the revelation of Jesus' name. And I mean, they found a way to make it work. Yes, they did. If they could find a way to make it work. In a in a in an evil, quite honestly, an evil time such as that. How much more us today? How much more us? Come on! <laughs> How much more us today? I mean, my goodness, we don't face half of what they did during that. No, time we period. do not. We no. don't. We no. don't. What so I I look at that and I'm encouraged by that. If she could face that, and she could get through that, what's my excuse? What am What am I doing? Awesome. Awesome, man. That's that is true. And and I'll go ahead and bring um, uh, Vince on. 
Yeah. And uh, we're we're getting we're getting a multitude of questions here that that, that our 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 group wants to ask you. Sure. And um, Vince, why don't you go ahead and um, bring one of those first questions that you see? That we can go ahead and ask Nathan. Sure. So the first one that we have here is what happened to that flirt race line since there's not necessarily as much of the mixing of races in the Pentecostal church as much anymore. So what happened? Organization. Uh -huh. Humanity. Organized. So this is the best way that I can describe it. Organizations have their place and they're wonderful, right? At the end of the day, they're needful. But the problem with that is then it becomes very humanity focused. Unfortunately, during that time piece or that time period, rather, you get people vying for leadership of this. So I'll give you an example. One of the things, Parham, Charles Parham and William J. Seymour used to be very close. Remember that it's Charles Parham that allows Seymour to come and listen to the teaching at Topeka, Kansas. Yet in 1916, when organization is starting to form, Charles Parham comes in and wants to take over the Azusa Street Revival. Well, how do you think that makes William J. Seymour feel? Uh, Not great. And so there's conflict over who is going to lead this revival. Needless to say, the revival doesn't last too much longer. And the only event that you can look at that says, trust me, historians have looked at it and said, why did it stop? Why did it? Well, the only thing that we can figure is people started fighting over who should lead it instead of focusing on God. Mm. So they were focusing on a single person instead of on the spirit. Absolutely. Because in the early years, nobody cared. There, there was no, William J. Seymour would get up and he, he might, uh, and I say preach a message, but let's be very clear. It's not like today's services. Uh, they weren't getting up there and, and, you know, having this organized, you know, service. It was very much, we're going to pray. And as the will of God deems it, he's going to come in and move. And work. they were very spirit-led. They didn't have James Wilson leading their music. They didn't have keyboards and drums and great microphones. They they got together and sang that. But but here's the catch. Then you get G.T. Haywood that writes, "I see a crimson stream of blood." Tell me tell me a song that beats that as far as what you feel in your spirit. I mean, my goodness, they. It was it was a different deal altogether. I read these hymns and I, I feel the spirit of the Lord now just thinking about the hymn. I'm too I'm I'm humming it in my mind, you know. Different world, but at the end of the day, Caleb, I would say this. This is this is my thought with that is when people got involved and they were more concerned about who was leading it than who they were following, we got in trouble. Mm, mm. And, and I heard um one of, one of Brother Johnson's lectures about, um, I, I don't know if you've, you've, you've read about the Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. Um, it was a, a very, very uh, a terrible thing that happened in, mm. uh, back in the 1900s. Um, and then uh, organizations, Pentecostal, one is Pentecostal organizations, held their conference uh, near that city and uh, caused the African-American uh, brothers and sisters to withdraw because yeah. they were, they felt it was insensitive. Yeah, because of that, um, and it was, it was. So, well, so again, and, humanity comes in again. 
and and look at it like this. So so remember again, I, I we made the distinction early on. We said that the the blurred race line was there. That God Frank Bartleman says it in his journal. He says the color line was was pulled away. It was withdrawn. Yeah. In the twenties, you really start getting a crackdown on Jim Crow enforcement of Jim Crow. A great uh, Wacker. Um, I'm trying to remember Grant Wacker. Grant Wacker uh, wrote yep. this wonderful Heaven book. Below. Heaven Below. Ooh, great nice. book. Great book, by the way. Excellent. And, and he, yeah, right. You, you, you had to read it. Um, but one of the things they talk about is the Jim Crow South. There were a lot of churches that remained. So for all of the, all of the bad that we look at with Jim Crow and, and all of that kind of, and the enforcement of it, there were still a lot of local congregations that stayed integrated and stayed together. So I don't want to leave you thinking like, well, human organization came. That was the end of that. There was no leading of the spirit. It was just sin and humanity. And I don't want to leave you with that. So it splintered from Azusa Street and went everywhere. So you had local congregations that while organized were still um, interracial, Still, we're not listening to the Jim Crow laws. We're finding a way to gather together, to worship, to be together. Great stories. A lot of smaller individual stories, like we talked about, that makes up the bigger one. But as far as the, the bigger organizations go, no, there's a lot of instances where mistakes were made. Yeah. And we learn from those mistakes. That's yeah, why history is so important. Learn from those mistakes as we move forward. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Vince, is there another question? Sure. So the next one is related to your memory box. Will you add a letter and photos and stuff for your children? So, Sister Leela, I'm so glad that you asked that question. So here is, I encourage everybody to do this. I've got this massive box here, you know. Uh, I encourage everybody to do this. So I've got a letter in there. I've got pictures from my grandparents. And I've got pictures of mom and dad. But here you go. Now, this is a goofy little boy in 2000 when Calvary Tabernacle is being built. Now, I've put that in there. Get the camera angle right. That's right. But yeah, there's that little boy, his dad, and Calvary being built. And I don't even want to know what I'm doing there. Good Lord. <laughs> Good Lord. Good Lord. I feel bad for my parents. Really, honestly, I do. So, yes, the question is with every and and uh, Gina, I've told Gina, I want pictures. I, I want uh, yes. her story that that's an amazing story. So the answer to that is, yes, I, I collect every piece that I can um, in order to put it in there, because at the end of the day, I don't want them to know funny stories. And, yeah. uh, you know, they're, genie they're a genogram for health purposes. I want them to know their spiritual lineage and what God has brought them through and what, what he can do for them still. And so at the end of the day, yeah, that's important to me. I'll add all that stuff in there and more. Mm. But I encourage everybody to do it. Yes. It's, yes. it's meaningful. And it's powerful listening to people that have gathered this together and put it together and had to share the story, powerful. Awesome, awesome. So the next question is related to that. How can we do it justice? 
How can we pass on to our children our stories? Um, like yours, dig that out and do it justice. <laughs> uh, so honestly, at the end of the day, I'll tell you, this is what I have. I have been very intentional. Mm. It's not, it's not anything that happens by accident. That's right. Super intentional about digging that out. You guys have a rich, I, sister, sister Regina, you have a rich history, rich heritage. Yeah. I, district superintendent there. Uh, I know he's got a rich heritage for sure but that's because you were intentional about sharing those stories there were times around the dinner table you all talked about family history and what god has done yeah folks need to get back to doing that that's the problem we all go about our own separate ways and at the dinner table we don't talk about what god has done in our family those moments of hey sit with me you know my grandfather i just spent um it's a perfect example i think will help in that knowledge Two weeks ago, I was just down in Texas and uh, spent seven hours with my granddad. I have not seen my granddad in three, four years. Wow. A lot to catch up on. But for seven hours, we were going back and forth, shooting the breeze, trying to cover a multitude of years lost. And what I found to be true is as long as you stay together in the seven years or that seven hours, rather, we could not properly cover all that was lost. Sitting down with your family, talking to them about the stories that you that you have personally experienced and your family's writing them down mm. so that you don't forget them. We're losing a lot of our history because folks are not writing it down. Facts get a little distorted. I just did a, a piece with Sister Trout. Um, I'm interviewing her. You'll get a kick out of this. I'm interviewing Sister Trout and I'm... According to the research that we have, she is the first single female to Jamaica as a missionary. So I'm sitting down to have this discussion with her, and we're about halfway through the interview. And I'm thinking, this is going great. And she 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 says, she says, well, yeah, it's a shame I'm not the first. What? What do you mean? The whole premise is you were the first one. No, there was somebody else. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of blown away by it. I'm like, what? Who? <laughs> yeah. So I'm asking her all these questions, like, who is it? Tell us who it is. And of course, the details are all blurred. She, you know, she couldn't remember uh the full name and all because it's been years ago. God bless. I mean, it's been years. So there is this person that supposedly exists that was first, but we don't have all the details. Why do I say that? Write down your history when you can recall everything properly. Date it. Put it together in a journal. I keep a journal of events and things that have happened, not only for our church, but for myself, so that I can pass those things along to my kids. So if you want to do it justice, take the time. Be intentional. Yes. Make sure that you're finding a place to tell the stories. That's how we used to do it. There used to be story, a storytelling component to the family. That's how you knew family history. It was told to you. We need to get back to doing that. People need to get off their cell phones, get off of the internet, the monitor, and spend 10, 15 minutes talking about it. It's intentional. Good stuff. Does that answer that question? Yeah. Yeah. Talk. Okay. Talk to your family. Like <laughs> Talk to your family. 
share stories. Put the but, phone down. Talk to your family. But a memory box is you. So I'll I'll give you I'll give you one last thing and then I'll stop harping on it. It's this is huge for me. Create as a family, create a memory box. Hand out assignments. Have the have the kids interview the grandparents. That's yeah. that, I mean, that ensures right. that the story is told. Have it written down, put it in the memory box. So do this memory box as a family together. Yeah. All right. I'll get off of that. All right. So next one. Well, obviously this question, obviously your grandmother was an instance of a woman preacher, but were there multiples? Were they relatively common? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, here's what I find to be hilarious. The early Pentecostal movement is predominantly women, yet men are the ones that write the history. And so, of course, uh, of, you know, God, I'm just being honest. I mean, that's, that's how it, I'm being honest. That's how we it goes. We got Nathan Miller unfiltered. Go ahead, brother. But that's how it goes. That's yeah. how it goes. Uh, any good historian will tell you that history is written from the side of the victor, not the vanquished. So at the end of the day, whoever is writing it down is the one that tends to put themselves First and foremost, I'll give you an example. William J. Seymour is not William J. Seymour without a lady called Lucy Farrell. Lucy Farrell is the one that helped him when he was in Topeka, Kansas, get to the class. She knew Charles Parham, kind of made the introductions there, got him the preaching engagement that got him out to California, and then was with him helping him run Azusa Street. Yet you very rarely hear about Lucy Farrell. In fact, it's not until today, now that culture has shifted and the lenses now are looking more at that direction, which I love about time. And I say that because my grandmother would have never gotten her due. Yeah. Such an amazing story. Yes. But if you look at the church's history, and I'm not going to tell you what church is, I don't want to embarrass them. She doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> she founded it. Doesn't exist. So I say all that. I mean, I, I'd be, you know, I try to be as, as kind as I can there. Caleb, to your question and to the answer to your question, yes, there are a ton of lady preachers. In fact, if you were to go throughout all of Pentecost, not just the 20s and 30s, but then past that into the 50s and 60s, uh, there are quite a few uh, women ministers, preachers that carry us forward. Um, And I can certainly tell you there, there it's, they're numerous, but I would give you the example of Lucy Farrell. I think that's a per perfect example. William J. Seymour is not who he is, and perhaps even not Parham without Lucy Farrell. Wow. So are there any books on this topic, this topic I believe referring to just our Pentecostal heritage and history? Are there any books you would recommend? So, there's so you're talking to a bibliophile. Um I, I, there's, there's a ton of books. So I will tell you, I'll tell you this. Um, I highly recommend Grant Wacker's Heaven Below. The reason that I, I recommend that book is because it takes a very cold, it examines early Pentecost, but from the perspective of American culture. And so it talks about every aspect of American culture and how that played into it. Um, I will tell you, what is, Arash, I'm thinking of the book right now. Is it Fire Below? Fire, there's fire below. There's also black fire. Black fire. That's right. Black fire. That is a phenomenal book um, as well. Howard Goss, that's a good book by Robin Johnston. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to be careful because there's a lot of books that are, 
written from a ver- from a different perspective. Not everybody that writes on Pentecostalism is Pentecostal. And so while they present good facts to it, some of them don't write in a very clear light our story and our history. Um, so I would say anything. Brother Bernard has a couple. I think it's, what is it, New is it New Birth? The, the New Birth. And then um, there's one more. called the glory are you talking about the what his, his thesis or he covers he covers our history so i would yeah. i would recommend um brother seagraves you, you uh, like this urshan brother seager care uh covers brother urshan there's a lot of information in his oh, book urshan, yeah. that surrounds brother urshan uh so if you would like to know about pentecost you can't have the story of pentecost without or the United Pentecostal Church. Let me rephrase that. The United Pentecostal Church. You cannot have the story of the United Pentecostal Church without Brother Urshan. And so I would recommend Daniel Seagrave's uh, book on uh, Brother Urshan. And there's a lot that's encompassed with that. And then Brother Bernard, New Birth. And there's one other book that he writes uh, that I highly recommend. And he covers a lot of the history. And then I think Grant Wacker, as far as those that are not of the United Pentecostal Church. I think Grant Wacker does a very fair job um, because he explores the rise of Pentecostalism through the lens of American culture and what it meant in every aspect. So he covers women. Remember, there's a world war that's being fought during this time period. So how does Pentecost, the rise of Pentecostalism, how does it deal with World War I? How does it deal with women in ministry? How does it deal with customs? What, what is the worship like? This book covers all of that. So this is the book that I tell people, if you want to know a little bit more and get your feet wet, start with this book. If you want to know more about the United Pentecostal Church, I highly, or Black Fire, as you Black said. Fire. Covers it, Black it Fire. It looks like yep, African-American lens, and it's predominantly oneness. It is. Uh, and then also the, the book In Jesus' Name by David Reed. That was it. That was it. I was like, oh, I'm forgetting. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. See, Arash with the assist. <laughs> I owe you. I owe you a steak. <laughs> um, and then, of course, if if you're willing, uh, Scott, if you're willing, I'm more than I'm more than willing to compile a few books. Uh, Br- Brother Arash has my my number and all of that. I'll be happy to send him some other recommendations and get those to you. But those are the books off the top of my head that I think are really good. That's that's plenty for Scott. Scott, that's enough for him to to swallow. <laughs> that's quite a bit of books there. And I mean, Jesus' name is from the lens of where did the oneness, where did that oneness movement come from? And um, excellently written. Right. You you can you can go for days on books. I think yes. what did we list about five? Yeah. Right there for you know at least. So that's a great place to start. Yeah. So related to history, how old were you when you received the Holy Ghost, and then how old were you when you received your call, Sister Boss? I feel like you know the answer to that one. <clears throat> But if you don't, <clears throat> I was three when I received the Holy Ghost. Um, I was so I was in Indianapolis. I was this is this is how I know. Um, this is how I know that God can fill anybody with the Holy Ghost. Yes, anybody, and it does not matter your age. If you want the Holy Ghost, you can have it. I was three years old. I was at General Conference uh, in Indianapolis, and my grandmother. Um, speaking of heritage and sort, my grandmother, the rule of thumb was you did not go to bed until you had family prayer. You were not going to go to bed without having family prayer. And she was staying with us. And so guess what? We were going to have family prayer before going to bed. And as a three-year-old, I I remember listening to people. Remember I said earlier, every decision 
that you make makes a difference. I've got a baby girl that's coming. Now I make sure she can hear me pray because I had listened to other people pray. And the phrase that I had caught as a three-year-old was, you are the mighty God. Mm. And I kept repeating over and over, you are the mighty God. You are the mighty God. And as a three-year-old, God looked down and saw an innocent heart that really truly believed he was the mighty God, filled me with the Holy Ghost. And as a three-year-old, you don't have many memories. I do remember that. Wow. I remember that. Filled me with the Holy Ghost. As far as my calling into ministry, um, at five years of age, six years of age, Kent Christian College, for those that remember, those poor students, I'd preach at them. You're going to the pit. If you don't repent, <laughs> you're going to the pit. I'd line those Kent Christian College students up in the living room. God bless them. They were so generous to a, a br pretty bratty kid who was telling them they would go to the pit if they didn't repent. Here they were doing ministry in our church. I'm telling them they don't get their lives together. They're going to the pit. Uh, so, so, so uh, you know, the call to preach, I think, was pretty young. I'll tell you where the call to pastor came. Uh, I was in my 20s. I was married, and um, I was living in a trailer home, and uh, the, the conditions were not wonderful. I'll put it to you that way. Uh, it had just snowed. I was involved in ministry at the church. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I remember thinking, Lord, what am I doing here? It's freezing cold. I don't want to be, a, these people are weird. They're mean. Long story short, I'm giving you the condensed version. And I remember the Lord calling me to ministry right there, to minister in the area that I was in. Um, I'll never forget it. Because I, 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 I remember saying, Lord, I'm tired of being poor. I'm tired of being here. And he said, if you don't, if you don't minister to the poor, who will? Mm. If you don't preach to the less, then who will? I'm asking you. And that he trusted me with uh, with that group of people, it, it spun. And so in that moment, I can tell you where I was at. I dropped my shovel, went to my knees in the in the in the freezing cold, repented for the heart that I had, and dedicated myself to pastoring in this area. And that's where I received my call to pastor. And that was in my early 20s. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. If you won't pastor these poor, who will? Who will? And it's the area that I pastor. And if you haven't been here, uh, it, it's, it's an area that, that's greatly in need. And so fortunately, we have the ability now. We're running food drives, blood drives, um, really building with the community and doing well. And it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. So the Lord knew. Lord knew. Lord knew. Mm, you don't Once know who it does make a difference. Yes, it does. <laughs> so obviously you spoke of your grandmother. Who else in your family carried the torch? Brother Johnson, that's a great question. Um, here's, here's, here's something very interesting. So it's very personal to my family, but um, a lot of, a lot of my, so my mom, uh, she, you know, my mom and my dad, they preach and pastor. Um, my aunt, I have, I have aunts and uncles, uh, that are pastors. So my, uh, I have an uncle Wayne in Louisiana that pastors and preaches there. Um, and I have fam other family members that are, that are preachers, but here's what I've noticed to be true is with every generation, it becomes a little less and less. I, 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 the, the wind, it hit me the other day. Maybe this is why I'm so passionate uh, about this. It hit me the other day that out of my 
I still, I still got my mom and dad. I've still got aunts and uncles, but of the cousins of the younger generation, uh, to my knowledge, I am the only one pastoring and or preaching. I'm the only one. I have some cousins that grew up in church. They don't even serve the Lord anymore. Um, that's why this story matters. Yes. That's why it matters connecting the next generation so that that doesn't, that branch doesn't get cut off. And so whatever for now that happens to be preaching, but you know, I, I, I'm in touch with people all the time. Their ministry is, um, I, in fact, when we were getting ready to start our food drive, I was talking to a brother in Texas. That is his ministry has completely changed Cleveland, Texas, completely changed it, completely redid it. And so for him, you know, gathering people to help him with this, that's his ministry. That's what he does. I would say whatever it is that you do, make sure that whomever you have an impact in their life, make sure that they don't, that when you leave, you you don't leave it empty handed. It gets passed to somebody else that they can pick up the torch and can continue on whatever it is that we do. Because the church is made up of so many different ministries and people. All of them needed. Yep. And so I'm. that's why, Brother Johnson, that's why I'm passionate about it. Yes, my mom and dad have carried the torch. My grandparents, uh, my great-great-parents, uh, rather, they carried the torch. But out of all of the cousins and everyone left, I'm the only one left preaching. Mm. So I hope that answers Hope that answers that one. We're gonna tell our Whatever story. Do, Good point. Whatever you do, yeah. make sure somebody pairs with you. Yeah. So this is the last question so far. Not exactly related to what you were talking about, but just wanted to check in. So, um, basically, how are your wife and daughter doing, and how big's your baby girl? Oh, um, she's too big. Yeah, she's too big. Uh. They are doing excellent. They are doing really, really well. Thank you for asking. Uh, she's doing so. My wife is doing really well. Um, so there's so much to to incorporate over the last year and a half. How do you how do you start with that, right? So it's like COVID throws everything out of whack. So the norm is now having to be reestablished. You know, everybody's doing really well. Uh, my wife is currently still at her job at Adobe, but is is shifting gears, and God's doing an incredible thing there. My daughter um, is hitting the 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 age two. I'll leave it at that. Uh, she's hitting the age of two. She has a mind of her own, and uh, my mom constantly reminds me, "Oh, you do in fact reap what you sow." So, <laughs> so any kind of you know any kind of uh, you know time that she throws a fit or she gets angry, my mom. I'll just look over every once in a while. I see my mom smile and just you know, do one of those deals. I'm like, yes, I know. I know. But the, but the, the crown jewel of my life, love that little girl. Uh, in fact, that's where they're at right now. They're over at Grammy and granddad's house having fun. So everybody's doing well. Thank you for asking. So let's see. It looks like we get one or two more questions. The one. So are there any books written on or that include an accurate account of race relations in the church throughout history? Oh, uh, that's a great question. Um, Would Black Fire I'm, do that or no? It touches on it, but it, it's 
it, it doesn't like chronicle it in depth. That wasn't wow. the purpose of the book. They do touch on it. As far as books that are specific to race relations, I am not aware. Every book that I've read is the culmination. It really becomes the culmination of all of these books. So different books that I've read hint at different kind of race relations and how that goes throughout. And from all of that information, you kind of get the sense of what it was. Keep in mind, we go back and study through a cultural lens as well. So what was the culture of the day back then? And you have to remember that to the best of their ability, uh, the men and women that are coming up and, and, and involved in this church, they're doing the best they can to deal with the culture of the day and with the leading of the spirit. They didn't always get it right. We just said it earlier. They, they didn't always get it right, but predominantly they did. People forget that there were more than just, you know, these big uh, churches and big revival. There were churches all over the United States that were small, you know, 20, 30, 40 people that were mixed congregations, were doing well, um, and now are the basis for larger congregations that are that are doing well. So there's no and there's not any one book that I am aware of. I would be happy to kind of look that up and see because now you've got me interested in that uh, to see if there's a specific book. Um, but no, probably more the culmination of books and, and studying the culture of the day. Mm. So were the two organizations that combined, were they both oneness or was one more on the fence? The, the UPCI, the United Pentecostal Church. That's what she's asking. Mm -hmm. Oh, specifically for the United Pentecostal Church. That's yes. correct. Um, no, these were two oneness. These were two oneness um, organizations. Now they differed in uh preaching they differed in how to implement that sometimes so i'll be very specific some some had you you have to remember i'm trying i'm trying to go back and be as as delicate to it i haven't been delicate thus far so i'll just keep keep trudging through you're talking about newark uh, yeah it's newark man i i'm not even gonna try uh trudging through is the answer there there were some that were were very hardcore the best way is listening to Dr. Johnson in the way that he said it. He said, you have to remember that some of these individuals were very close to people that didn't seem to get the oneness revelation. And so though they had the oneness revelation, they still wanted to carry relationship with those that did not. And so it became a point of contention. Why am I saying that? Because some people put the emphasis, emphasis on it hard and then others did not. It was like, well, because they believe, you have to remember, some believe that the leading of the Spirit, it would reveal it to them in time. When they were ready, God would reveal it to them because that's what happened to them. Others were like, you I, look at it. It's in script. Look at it. It's in scripture, you know, forgetting that God reveals these things to people in his perfect time and in his perfect place. So how does that deal with the organizations? Well, there's 521 churches that come together. Some of them believe that this is something that should be uh, preached hardcore. Others did not believe that. I'll give you an example. Sister Trout tells of a story in which they were going, her and Brother Trout were going up to Canada. They were very good friends with Brother Goss, our first superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church. Uh, Brother Goss, they, Brother Goss actually married them. Which I think is is pretty, of course, right, right, Arash? Of course, of course, of course. Of course. Um, 
But I'm interviewing Sister Trout, and I'm just like a gluttony for information. I'm like, please, just pour more in. And so uh, she was she was saying that Brother Goss was like, okay, when you go up into Canada and you're preaching, that remember, this is a newly formed deal. He's telling them, try to leave that issue. Let, let the leaders of the church handle that issue. You know, they're younger ministers at the time. So please don't dive into that issue when you're preaching up in Canada. Let other people handle that because that's their responsibility. She didn't say whether they listened to that or not. <laughs> I kept going because, you know, that's that. And I just laughed. I said, Sister Trout, knowing you, I, I'm not so sure about that. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, everybody had their opinion on how it should be handled. So they were oneness organizations. But remember, it took 1931, 1932. It took 11, almost 13 years for them to get together. What's 19? I'm not doing my math right. 1931, 1945, 14 years. 14 years. For them to kind of finally come together. What does that tell you? They didn't agree on a whole lot of things. Oneness, they did agree on, but there were other things that they, the implementation of oneness, how that's preached, what do we do about our Trinitarian brothers and sisters that we came with. So even though they agreed on the, necessarily agree on everything else and the implementation of that. So it was very, it almost did not happen. It was very close. I actually just listened to a story uh, at the last meeting that I was at, Brother Don Martin, I believe in Brother Foss. We're discussing the merger, and they said it was very close to not happening. People were coming to disagreements, and finally, cooler heads prevailed, and they merged. Wow. Amazing, right. amazing. So, Nathan, we are at the top of the hour. And uh, well, I just want to say thank I hope you. that was good. I hope that was helpful. No, it was very helpful. Thank you for uh, sharing. I, I'm yeah. fascinated about this great grandmother of yours, this Cherokee grandmother of yours. and. You will probably uh, hear hoping, more about her later. I'm hoping there's a book in development because I would I would gobble that up because that, that's fascinating to me. Um, so I, I love stuff like that. So that, that's really fascinating. Um, thank you for joining us tonight, Newark. Uh, again, please um, like and share our comments. Let us reach your friends and family on social media. Uh, if you want to partner with us in giving, go to newarkupc.info and uh, give as well as all our resources, small groups, and as we continue about uh, failed expectations, uh, please stay with us connected this weekend. It's Pentecost Sunday. This is a big, big weekend for us, um, and we're going to have some really good, powerful sermon on Sunday um, as well as Saturday. So remember at 7 p.m., be with us, stay connected, uh, and um, and we'll be coming to our church pretty soon. So in a few more weeks, and we'll be open. There you go. Uh, there you go. Well, God bless. Thank you for joining us tonight. And My you guys pleasure. have a good night. Thank you for having me. God yeah, bless thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.